Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Krabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident Krabby Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Dr. Jim, welcome to Confessions of a Crappy Christian. Hey, Blake, glad to be on with you today. Thanks for the privilege. As I said off air, love your title, love what you're doing, and so glad to be in the conversation today. I am really looking forward to this. I, again, before we started recording, told you that I need you to explain some things for me and for the people who listen, because I get get DMs asking questions, and I'm really excited to be able to point people to someone that this is just a part of what you do. But before we get into that, you are the author of The Coming Tsunami, which comes out in just a couple of weeks when we're recording. This is very exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and kind of what you do? Absolutely. Glad to do that. By title, I'm a cultural apologist. What that means is that I speak biblical truth to cultural issues. Mm-hmm. My goal is to equip Christians to use their influence more effectively, more redemptively for Jesus in our culture. And so I'm all the time writing and speaking and traveling and doing events and talking about the issues of the day. I have a PhD in philosophy, taught philosophy at four seminaries. I pastored four churches with about 20,000 members in total. And then about 12 years ago, we started Denison Forum so I could do what I'm doing with you on a full-time basis. We have other brands that are part of this as well, have a devotional resource, a parenting resource. My wife does Bible study on her Foundations with Janet Denison platform that's just terrific. And then Denison Forum is where I live. Denisonforum.org is the website. People can find the daily article. I write every morning based on that day's news, goes out to about 400,000 subscribers, about 2.9 million in total audience. And so everything that I'm doing is lives basically there at Denisonforum.org. And so as I've been interested in cultural issues over these years, in recent months, Blake, I've become convinced of something that I've not ever said before. And I want to make that point, lest this sounds like some kind of hyperbole or some kind of of sensationalism. I truly believe that biblical Christians are facing a rising tide of cultural animosity that is unprecedented in American history. Mm -hmm. I really do believe that. Now, I wouldn't have said that six months ago, wouldn't have said that a year ago. That's not some byline for us. That's something I've become convinced by as I'm watching what's happening in the culture. The metaphor we're using is the idea of a tsunami that we can unpack and these earthquakes that are causing it. But that's really what caused the book mm. is a desire to help people understand our cultural moment and redeem it to the glory of God. Can you explain a little bit why you feel that way and why in the last six months do you feel like that's ramped up so much? Yeah, absolutely. You bet. So the metaphor may help with that a little bit. Uh, we're not real familiar with tsunamis in Dallas where I live right, <laughs> right. now. 
Thankfully. If you were in Hawaii, Pacific Rim, maybe a little different. So tsunamis are these huge tidal waves that are typically caused by underwater earthquakes you don't see that produces a tidal wave you do. In the book, I'm describing four underwater earthquakes, a couple of which have been around a long time, and then two that more directly answer your question. So the first is a denial of truth. The belief mm -hmm. that truth is personal, individual, and subjective makes the Bible a diary of religious experience. It says, you have your truth, I have my truth, right? Mm -hmm. Leads to a second earthquake, which is a denial of biblical morality. So now we're talking about the sexual revolution of the 60s and all that that has meant. LGBTQ activism these days, same-sex marriage, all of that. Well, that's pretty well known. There's a third earthquake out there as well called critical theory and specifically critical race theory that we can come back and talk about. But it says that Christians, especially white Christians, are part of an oppressive class by virtue of our status, by virtue of our class status in the culture. We're oppressive. So first of all, our truth is irrelevant. Second, our morality is outdated and intolerant. Third, we by definition are oppressors. And then the fourth really answers your question. There's a rising what's being called secular replacement ideology. We can unpack it, but it essentially says that religion is dangerous. Religion causes 9-11s and flies planes into buildings. Religion causes clergy abuse scandals and spends money on buildings instead of people and heaven instead of earth, especially on the coast, especially in the academy. There's this growing movement that's claiming personal authenticity is the path to flourishing. And if you disagree, your religion is dangerous mm -hmm. and must be replaced. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that, and that's unprecedented in American history. So you put all that together, and you really get a tsunami that we're starting yeah. to see lapping up on the shore. That's, I think, probably people listening, whether they stay in tune to the news or not, you've experienced all four of these. Like you've seen this, whether you could put names to it, whether you're paying, you know, whether you get news alerts or not, because it's no longer on the fringes, which is exactly what you're saying. Like it is inundating our like very normal day-to-day -day lives. All four of those are. And I told you before we started recording that one of the things that I, I asked a favor of you, which was mm -hmm. If you could maybe expand a little bit on that definition of critical theory, critical race theory specifically, I know that this is touchy for some of the people that are listening. I'm just asking you to have an open mind and maybe be willing to look at your experiences and see if this is actually reality. Sure. And a thing to learn from. Absolutely. Sure. Part of the reason there's so much confusion about it is that it's such a broad category. It's really more of an umbrella than it is a specific entity, but there are some things that are in commonality here. So start with critical theory. You're going back to the 20s or 30s, what's called the Frankfurt School in Germany, specifically a man named Max Horkheimer, who's the guy that really coined the phrase critical theory back in 37. It's a Marxist construct. And I don't mean that pejoratively. Mm -hmm. I, I've taught classes on Marxism over the years. It's a social theory. We obviously know of Karl Marx, but more than that, Marxism says that we experience life in classes. So it's really a Marxist move. We're thinking about Karl Marx specifically, but Marxism that's bigger than that, which says it just claims that we live life in classes, that we experience the world that way. I experience the world as a white male in America, for instance, and my experience, different from yours as a white female in America, is a class experience. Marxism teaches that these classes are in constant struggle with each other. And those that are prosperous in the culture, those that are successful in the culture, have by definition oppressed the less popular classes someplace along the way. Mm. 
to get where they've gotten in this class struggle that Marxism says is what history is, the winners have oppressed the losers. That's critical theory. And now the way to go forward in critical theory is to even the playing field somehow. So the first thing you do is admit what I just said. If you're in the majority class, then second, you look for ways that you can make it up to the minority class, the reparations or whatnot. And if necessary, you oppress the oppressors so as to liberate the oppressed. Mm -hmm. All of that's critical theory. In the 70s, it starts getting applied to race by primarily a legal theory originally, uh, Derek Bell and others, but it's basically applying what I just said in the construct of race. So you have majority races and minority races. That's why they're called minorities. Mm -hmm. In America, you'd have Anglos in the majority. You'd have Asians or Hispanics or African-Americans in the minority. Critical race theory applies critical theory to say there is systemic racism, class-centered racism in the culture. And if you're in the majority, you have benefited from this racism. You never enslaved anybody, but you've ridden on railroads built by slaves. Mm -hmm. You didn't enslave anybody, but you've been to the White House built in part by slave labor. That the majority is still benefiting from the oppression of the minority in a systemic level, on a mm-hmm. systemic way, and the majority class needs to do something about that. That's essentially critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Now, if I could go on just a bit, there are really five ways to look at this in a biblical construct, and this is where I'm going to get in some trouble. Here's where we're going to have some listeners that are going to agree with some or the others of all of these. One application is the suggestion systemic racism still exists today. I absolutely believe it does. Some examples of that. Recently, a survey was done. Anglo-sounding names versus African-American sounding names sending out resumes. Mm -hmm. The African-American sounding names had to send 50% more resumes than the Anglo-sounding names to get a callback. It is a fact that a black person is twice as likely to be sentenced to death for killing a white person as a white person for killing a black person. Mm -hmm. It's a fact that a black person is three times more likely to be stopped at a traffic intersection than a white person and six times more likely to be ticketed. Black people serve 20% longer sentences than white people for the same crimes. Mm -hmm. 38% more likely to be sentenced to death than white people for the same crimes. Systemic racism is a fact, I believe, in CRT, critical race theory, exposes that fact. Mm -hmm. That's a biblical fact because all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And racism is a sin, Mm -hmm. right? Second application quickly, personal racism. Is it possible that I myself am on some level motivated by or influenced by racist, racist tendencies in my life? I have no ability to sit here with you and say, categorically, that can't be true for me. I don't want to be a racist. I don't intend to be a racist. I would tell you I'm not a racist, but I regularly speak to a very dear African-American friend who does inventory with me and shows me the places where, unbeknownst to me, what I'm saying comes across that way, what I'm doing comes across that way. I'm making assumptions I don't understand. Mm -hmm. I'm acting in ways that are perceived in racist ways. Now, again, biblically, I've got to be aware of the fact I'm a fallen person. I am a sinner like anybody else, and I've got to be in touch with the possibility of therefore racist tendencies in my life. Mm -hmm. Third place is reparations for present sin. This is where we're going to get in some challenges. I believe it's biblical that where I have harmed another person, I should repent and make reparation. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about Zacchaeus, right? Mm -hmm. And the reparations he made after the theft that he had committed. 
You're thinking about Jesus' statement. If you bring a gift to the altar, remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar. First go make things right with your brother, then present the gift. So when I'm aware that I'm participating in systemic racism as a class or as a person, I need to do something about that. That would be a third. Now, the fourth I would disagree with, just between as I'm being blunt about this, and this is class reparations, mm-hmm. where white people owe reparations to black people simply for being white. Mm-hmm. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. Mm-hmm. The Bible doesn't see sin in the context of class as much as individual. It's something yes. I have to commit, not something that I simply commit by being white or black or brown. Mm-hmm. This assertion that we ought to see sin in classes keeps minorities from being aware of their own sin, just like it keeps majorities uh, less aware of their sin and being accused of sin they didn't commit. So I'm uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth is reparations for past sins in class structure as well, all the way back to 1619. And the idea that white classes owe black classes reparations for 400 years of slavery as it were. That would be Ibram Kendi. That would be the idea that if you don't do that, if you're not an anti-racist, you're a racist. Mm. I would just disagree biblically. Yeah. I don't think God sees us in classes in that way. Practically, how do you decide that? How do you make these reparations? Who makes the decisions? When is it enough? How do you work all that in a practical level is really problematic. So somebody could come along and say, I'm an advocate of CRT because what I said about the first three. Right. Somebody could say that I'm racist because of what I said about four and five. All of that would be unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But that's anyway how I process CRT in the context of biblical categories. I think that last thing that you said that or just your general, the general thought of if you're not actively being anti-racist, you're racist. We saw that absolutely explode in -hmm. June, July of 2020. That was the black squares. That was white people just ad nauseum apologizing, doing what you do. What was that like snippet of time like? Because as someone who I was pre-law, ended up not going to law school. So mm. I have this like benchmark of things that I understand yeah. and then have walked with Jesus for 15 years. Mm. Watching that collision happen and just the, let's take it to the Christian sphere, right? Like, okay, we're, we have to have different expectations of the world and people living in it. Sure. Watching that kind of take place in the Christian sphere was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Watching people apologize for things that, in my head, I'm going, what are you? I, I know this person. I know this person. And I know they're not a racist. Mm-hmm. What are you, what are you apologizing for? You're apologizing now for existing mm-hmm. the way God made you. Mm-hmm. That had to have been fascinating. It really was. It was a movement we've not seen in American history. We've mm-hmm. not seen us be at this place where this Marxist construct, where you are what your class says, is so definitional and so motivational. But that's the context in which we find ourselves. Something I left out before that comes into that point of the conversation, too, is called intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody, Kimberly Crenshaw and others have said this, that you're not just one class, right? My classes are, for instance, I am male, I am heterosexual, I am white. Well, those are three classes. You might be black, gay, and female. Well, you're experiencing life in three different ways. And the more you're experiencing life as a minority, the more intersectionality of your various minority experiences, the more privileged you should now be by the culture, because the more oppressed you have been by the culture. Mm -hmm. And some of that was what you were seeing in the background of that as well. This has been taught in the academy now on various levels for 20 or 30 years. 
Mm. Not so much that you're going to find a bunch of classes calling themselves critical race theory in the catalog. I'm not saying that. There may be right. some of that, but not so much. But the ideas that we're discussing right now are in sociology classes. They're in history classes. They're in English literature classes. They're really, in many ways, something that's become kind of conventional wisdom in the culture. So with the horrific, sinful, tragic death of George Floyd, something that should horrify every single American, yes. when that happened... A lot of what we saw come to the bear in Black Lives Matter and all of that came out of a construct, an academic construct and worldview that we're describing that was news to most Americans. Right. They just didn't have the background we're describing right now. So for them to see white people apologizing for being white without the construct of what we're describing, without this context, just felt absolutely outside reality, mm -hmm. you know? But inside this reality, where the first step to leveling the playing field is apologizing on behalf of white people mm -hmm. for what whites have historically done to blacks and are still doing to blacks makes more sense. Mm -hmm. The idea of, look, the first way to treat a disease is to admit the disease. Right. If I want to admit I have cancer, I'm not going to take chemotherapy. Right. right. And so the first thing that's got to happen is whites have to admit the degree to which whites have enslaved blacks. Mm. And so if I stand up and say, I did something I didn't do, that doesn't work. Right. But if I say we as whites have done X to blacks, that's true. Right. And we need to admit that and need to figure out what systemically we can do about it from criminal reform justice to leveling playing fields in education to redlining within inner cities. I mean, I'm living in Dallas here where we have entire food deserts in this city where minority populations have no access to healthy food. Yeah. Where their only access to financial services are payday loans at 20% interest rates where there is absolute systemic oppression in Dallas, Texas. And I mm -hmm. love Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. And so if we're denying that's true, then we're obviously part of the problem. Ibram Kennedy right. would say you're part of the problem, right? Right. You can't just be a non-racist. You have to be an anti-racist in the sense of what are you doing about it? What actively are you going to do with your influence? That's true. Mm -hmm. But if I'm claiming I said I did something I didn't do personally, mm -hmm. then that sounds illogical, irrational, and it's Unfortunately, when that happened, it made people kind of miss the larger story here and kind of exactly. I think that was such a huge part of the problem. Look, like I live in the deep south. Yeah. Racism still <laughs> exists. Like, yes. But I think that there's these two extremes. And I think that that's part of culturally an issue altogether is everything feels so extreme yes. that we're we're confused. But I think that part of the issue, I love that you went through those kind of five tenets. And you agree with some of them and disagree yes. with others. I think people feel like they're not allowed to do that. It's mm -hmm. all or nothing. And so I think you're seeing a lot of people who are rejecting CRT. You're seeing some people try to act like racism doesn't exist. Right. And exactly. then you've got the flip side of that, who is the people who are embracing CRT, who are saying racism runs everything. Mm -hmm. And nobody's teaching us like how to land in the middle. Mm -hmm. Or you are, but, are but not system. many people. <laughs> well, thank you. And it is difficult at that point, because as you say, we live in a culture that really wants to live on a t-shirt. It wants to live in a tweet. Right. You know, and social media amplifies these voices whereby I can curate only that with which I agree. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's awfully hard to get much play in the culture if you're not on the edge, if you're not on the extreme. Yeah. Years ago, when we started this ministry, uh, 12 years ago, I was talking to a dear friend of mine as we were talking about how to start a ministry like this. He asked me, well, who's your enemy? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, if you want to raise funds and we're a donor-based ministry, you have to do three things. It was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but kind of not. First of all, convince people they have an enemy they can't defeat. 
Mm. Second, convince them you can defeat their enemy. Third, tell them you will if they'll give you money or vote for you or whatever. So, so much of the business of media today depends on vilifying the other side is what I'm saying. Depends on, on simplifying everything down to right and wrong, black and white. I'm on the right side. You're on the wrong side. And if yes. you disagree with anything I've said, you've disagreed with everything I've ever said. And you don't love me. Yeah. And curate your social feed in such a way that you're only listening to the people with whom you agree. And we get in these echo chambers. And then something I just saw today, like I thought was fascinating, a new insight. If I then advance my opinion publicly through social media, psychologically, I feel an enormous need to defend it. Mm. Well, there was a day when not many people were able to advance their opinions. You had to publish a book and that was hard to do. (laughs) Had to get on TV and that was hard to get on radio. Now, everybody with a cell phone has a platform. So now that I get out there and say what I think about CRT Mm -hmm. and somebody like me comes along and says, well, it's more complex than that. There are actually five ways of looking at it. He feels attacked. Mm -hmm. And because he's already made his position public, he's out there on the stage. You're attacking him. Yeah. Now I'm attacking him, not just Mm -hmm. his belief. Mm -hmm. And now he's got to double down against me so as to defend himself. And now we're even further away from a civil discourse. Right. And that's the moment we find ourselves. It is. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about more the concept of your book and how this you know, cultural tsunami is going to impact Christians and families. I think a lot of people, if CRT is ringing a bell and they're not necessarily overly plugged in, they've likely heard about it in the context of it being in schools and parents kind of fighting back with CRTs, mm-hmm. CRT being in their kids' schools. Can you talk a little bit about that and and maybe what maybe give parents a little bit of hope or mm. or direction on how to like navigate that well? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a very, very relevant question. The first response comes to mind is to you always want to reframe uh, obstacles as opportunities, right? Mm. You want to turn challenges into, you know, into uh, into invitations, as it were. One of the good things coming, I think, out of all of the controversy about CRT in schools is now we're seeing parents get interested in their kids' curriculum in a way that I think is really healthy. 100%. I was shocked, and I don't mean this in a partisan way. I'd say it if he'd been a Republican, but when Terry McAuliffe said that parents have no right to know what's being taught in their kids' schools, the election was over that moment. 100%. And that's not a partisan statement. I'd have said that of a Republican as well. And so uh, the fact that we're even discussing this now and that parents are more engaged in this is, I think, a really positive good that I hope transcends CRT. Even when CRT maybe someday isn't in the topic, I hope we're thinking about this more than maybe we were. It's been a long time since that was true. You'd have to go back to the Scopes Monkey Trial and um, you know, the teaching of evolution and all of that. And maybe uh, prayer in public school in the 60s might have been the last time you saw parents as engaged as they are now. And I think that's a positive thing. So that's number one. Number two, parents need to know what they're talking about. Mm, exactly. It's real easy to dismiss their concerns if they're not well-researched. Yes. If they stand up and say, you're teaching my kids CRT, and an administrator says, well, where in the handbook does it say that? And the parent hasn't looked at the handbook. Right. Or doesn't know what CRT is. Yeah. So tell <laughs> they me just what read you it on Twitter. Yeah. All I know is that it's bad, you right. know, sort of a thing. You need to know what you're talking about in terms of what you're actually alleging here. And third, you better have evidence. Mm. If you're, yes. you know. If what I mean by CRT is you're making my white child stand up and confess being white, I can't have read about that online. Mm -hmm. I need my child to have actually had that experience. Yes. You know? Yes. And and I think that's huge is we don't 
it's not going to be in the handbook. Right. It won't be. It's not, they're not going to say CRT class 101. Exactly. It's not a thing like that. Right. It's really not. CRT doesn't exist like that. Mm -hmm. CRT is a, is a, it's a universe of ideas. It's an Mm -hmm. umbrella of ideas and different ideas have applications in different classes. Exactly. It's a different application in a history class. If you're talking about 1619 versus 1776, that's different than literature. And you're looking at racist tendencies in Uncle Tom's cabin or whatnot, Mm -hmm. you know, which is a different conversation than sociology might be, or a different conversation than psychology might be. And so Really, these are ideas. It's a worldview mm-hmm. that we're thinking about here. And that's why it's really asking parents to do something significant here, to understand this as more than a class or an idea and be ready to have this conversation. But really, we owe our administrators that. We owe our school districts. We owe our teachers that. Our teachers are on the front line. I don't know a teacher that isn't underpaid. A hundred percent. What they're doing is so critical in so many ways. They're missionaries out there. Many of them are believers mm-hmm. and they're kind of being made to teach a curriculum because of the way it works here. Exactly. And they're caught in the middle of all of this and demonizing them. Right. Absolutely unfair to them. So we want to have grace here. We want to be partners in this. We want not to be adversarial culture warriors here. We want to be partners together for the outcome of what's best for the kids because that's what we're all in this for. Mm-hmm. That wants to be the attitude by which we have these conversations, I think. I love that. I think because I I think that's a really good point that while you're advocating for your kid, you very well could be advocating for teachers who don't want to be reading the books that they're reading, implementing the things that they're implementing. We, I mean, like I said, I live like like tip of the boot, Uh deep south Louisiana. And I think that there's this like belief I guess there's maybe two, it was right around when everything really blew up in 2020 with, with race that it's kind of like, we live in, we don't live in New York. We don't live in LA. Like CRT isn't here. They're not teaching that to our kids. And then one of our friends, son who goes to the high school that I could like almost throw something and hit right there. Uh Okay. Moment had was asked to write a paper about how white privilege has made his life easier Uh in Louise, you know, so I think, but what if that parent hadn't been involved in his 16 year old son's Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. and the son hadn't said, you know, been able to have that conversation with him. And I completely agree with what you're saying that if nothing else, shoot, maybe this is making parents stop treating school like daycare, which is well said what it was created. I mean, it was created for the working families. That's, you know, that's a whole different podcast episode. The kids don't need to be in school for eight hours a day. (laughs) But like, I think if I agree with you that if nothing else, at least we're having some of those conversations, because if those kids don't experience it in school, they're going to get into the world and experience it too. Absolutely true. And if they have an access to an internet, then they're absolutely going to be experiencing it as well. And so we want to come back and make these teachable moments, right? Yes. So my 16-year-old son is assigned a paper, explain how you've been privileged by your white status. Okay, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. There are ways in which I have been privileged by my white status. The schools I went to, the public schools I went to, were demonstrably better experiences than inner city schools in Houston, Texas, where right. I grew up. That's just right. simply a fact. It is simply a fact that, as we talked about with employment, or we're talking about criminal justice systems. There is, There are systemic issues here. There Absolutely. are ways in which I have had experiences I wouldn't have had if I was Black. Right. To be blunt, I'm not certain if the four churches I pastored would have called me if I was Black. Hope they right. would have. Right. Love to believe they would have. Mm-hmm. I'm not 
and I don't mean this unkindly to them. I'm not certain if they would. So my son, as we're unpacking this, let's talk about that. But now let's also talk about the implication behind this, that you are only a product of white privilege mm-hmm. because exactly. you're only a product of a class. Let's unpack that. In other words, let's reframe this challenge as an opportunity for my son. Then let's go down to the school district right? and let's talk about how this got assigned, why it got assigned, what's behind this, what's really being taught here, and try to find ways to partner with teachers for the best outcomes for our kids, because that's why we're doing this together. Absolutely. No one that I know of decided to be a teacher to destroy kids. Right, right. Administrators didn't decide to put up with all that it. My wife used to teach public school. She was a second grade school teacher. And so I understand a little bit of what it takes to do that job. Mm -hmm. And let's not go in on the assumption these people are our enemies. Exactly. Who have been sent over by China to undermine American democracy and kill our kids. (laughs) Let's see these people as partners toward a joint shared outcome and find a way to do it that way. Now, if at the end of the day, they prove that that's not the case, well, we respond as we have to. But go in on a more positive. Kind yeah. of partnered relationship, I'd say. We you talked a little bit at the beginning about my the concept of my truth and mm-hmm. your truth and being post-truth. And I think that just in conversation with friends and about that whole my truth concept, I think a lot of the time what takes the most, what takes the biggest hit is our faith mm-hmm. because it shakes, do I am I wrong? Is there a truth or is there you're in my truth? Right. I, I feel like it's almost like we have, we're, we have to protect that. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? <laughs> yeah. And that is a challenge, isn't it? Because it's simply a fact that my faith is my faith. I experience Jesus in a way you don't. You experience him in a way I don't. Part of it is because you're female and I'm male. Part of it is we have different experiences and every one of us unique, right? We're all made in God's image, but we're all made uniquely in God's image. And so there is a subjective personal dimension should be to faith. Yeah. Faith can't be cookie cutter. It's not just, you know, ritual and routine and everybody goes through the same thing, comes out the factory looking the same way. There is a personal dimension to this, but there are some objective facts that enable and empower that subjective personal experience. Yep. For me to come along and say, there is no such thing as absolute truth is to make an absolute truth claim. (laughs) There is no such thing as truth. And I'm sure of it. Right. So it fails the logic test. It fails the practical test. If all truth and ethics are personal, individual, and subjective, then is the Holocaust just Hitler's truth? Mm. Is 9-11 just Al-Qaeda's truth? Mm. I mean, at what point are we going to have a society built on speed laws, speed limit laws, and seatbelts? All laws are an imposition of morality on some level, right? Mm -hmm. And the belief that there's a consensual common good here that is objectively true. So it fails the practical test. But then I think the best way to, in a post-truth culture, demonstrate the truth of Christianity is to prove his truth in my life. Mm. I may not get very far down the road with the logic test or the practical test, because you can just keep saying, well, look, that's just your truth. But when you see my truth change my life in a way that looks relevant to you, Mm -hmm. you might be interested in my truth is your truth. And if you experience my truth is your truth, what you're really experiencing is the truth. The truth. Exactly. And I think part of the issue is that a lot of Christians are holding on to objective objective truths as the truth, Mm -hmm. missing the mark on communicating to people what the truth actually is. And what it looks like and incarnating it in their lives. At the end of the day, one way that's been helpful to me as I've taught apologetics and evangelism over all these decades, imagine you're having a conversation with a Muslim who's trying to convert convert you to Islam. Mm. 
What's that going to feel like to you? What's that going to look like inside of you? Now, I'm going to assume he wouldn't be successful no matter what he does, but are you going to be converted by logic or you can be converted by a life that has stuff mm. you wish you had? Yes. You know? Yes. If you see things in him, you want in you. That's my story, Blake. Yeah. My father taught Sunday school, fought in the Second World War, and never went to church again. Mm. So I grew up in a wonderful, loving home, but no spiritual life. All my dad's questions, why is there a God? What about war? What about science and faith, evil and suffering? Dad had his first heart attack when I was two and died when I was in college. And so I grew up with all these faith questions, all these intellectual issues. 15 years old, I got invited to ride a bus to church. My first time I'd ever been to church. I began seeing in other people something I didn't have in me. Mm -hmm. 10th grade, friends. There was a joy, a peace, something. September 9th, 1973. I asked my Sunday school teacher, how can I have what you have? Mm. Not how can I be saved, justified, and sanctified, right? How can I have what you have? And she led me to faith in Christ. I will eternally be grateful for people who had experienced Jesus as their truth on a level that I wanted as my truth. Mm. Well, to me, that's biblical. That's first century. Mm. That's how the church grew. Yes. was changed lives being used to change lives. So all we're doing is what we've always done here. You know, yeah. if I walk with Jesus, other people will see Jesus in me and they'll be attracted to the Christ in me. Amen. How can I have what you have? Is exactly. that not the question we want everybody to ask us? And I think, again, I think that that gets placed on this scale of extremes of Christians who put their heads in the sand and don't want to talk about anything mm -hmm. cultural, political, and yep. then the ones that just do it so badly and they're so mad and they think that they're so right. It's ex both ends are so exhausting, to be yeah. honest, because yeah. if you are the head in the sand side, it's going to be really difficult for you to go talk to your kid about CRT or mm -hmm. the administration, but do the other end of that spectrum. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> And we get painted with that brush, don't we? Exactly. In a culture and admittedly in a media moment that doesn't really understand evangelical Christians, mm -hmm. except through lenses of politics and partisan politics or extremism, activistic sort of hateful sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's this kind of reduction to the extreme that's happening out there. Yes. That's why we need a movement of culture changing Christians, a movement of followers of Jesus who are willing to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 has in recent years really become my mantra, speaking the truth in love. We, yeah. love, we want to do one or we want to do the other, right? Yeah. Doing both requires the help of the Holy Spirit. So start every day by being submitted to the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, filled with the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to manifest the fruit of love, joy, peace, and the rest in your life. Ask God to help you speak in the truth, the truth in love with courage and compassion, courageous mm. compassion. That's what we need. Yes. The movement of people to do that. And that's why I believe in what you're doing. Because I re you didn't ask me to say this, Blake, but I really do believe that's what you're about. And that's what you're wanting to advance is that movement. And I'm really grateful. Oh, thank you. That really means a lot. Because like you said we all get painted with that wide brush. It's so true. I get lumped in with people that I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't, I've never done any of that. What are you talking uh -huh. about? Because, yeah. but because I do hold more conservative, uh -huh. completely Christian Mm -hmm. ideals and beliefs, you get lumped in with like the crazies. Right. And then you're, but then it's, I think that's made Christians afraid of talking politics and talking of culture. Of course. The enemy wins either way. Exactly. We're called, we're called to be salt and light. Salt's no good in the salt shaker, right? Light's no good under the basket. Good news is it just takes a little salt to change the food. Mm. Light always defeats dark. 
years ago, I was in Carlsbad Caverns with our youth group church I was pastoring. They got us down in the bottom of the caverns down there, got to sit down. Then the tour guide turned off his flashlight. I've never been in dark like that in my life. Couldn't see my hand. You could almost feel the dark. After a minute, he turned the flashlight back on and I couldn't help it. My eyes were drawn to the light. Yeah. Instinctively drawn to the light. If we will be the light of the world, the light always defeats the dark. John 1, the light's always overcoming the dark and the world will take notice. They will see that. They will see Christ in you. They'll be drawn to Christ in you. Be encouraged. He's still on his throne. He is still King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you're willing to be salt and light, you will be salt and light. Mm-hmm. It will use you in ways you can't imagine. Years ago, Alfred, and I saw a quote by Alfred North Whitehead, great people plant trees they'll never sit under. Mm. That's what you're called to do. You're called yeah. to be faithful, measure success by obedience, and know that God's using you to plant trees you may never sit under until you're in heaven, mm. and know that that's, that wins. Yeah, That's success. That's amazing. I love that quote. And I think that doesn't mean that everybody has to step into this sphere, right? but I do think that there are people who are equipped for this that are afraid. And so my hope is that listening to us talk about it, maybe makes them a little bit more willing to even just start having those, like, it doesn't have to be on Instagram, like just start having those conversations in real life, in your home, in your family, your book, by the time where this comes out, your book is out. So I personally am very much looking forward to reading it because I think in my mind, just as a parent, like just as a parent, this is so necessary because there's that quote I've seen floating around on the internet. That's like, don't be sorry. You raised dragon slayers in a time when there's dragons, you uh, know, like people are very yeah. like, I, why would you even have kids in a time like this? And yeah. it's like, cause I want to raise kingdom minded dragon slayers. There you go. I can't Absolutely. do that if I'm not equipped as well. So starts with us. Can't ask yes. our kids to do what we won't do. Can't exactly. lead people further than we're willing to go. And I completely agree with you. There's a spectrum of engagement here. I think we ought to ask God, God, what's my kingdom assignment in this? Mm. It's not the head in the sand, surely. I mean, we know that. You're at the very least the custodian of your influence, whatever that is. You're a steward of that. But I believe, Blake, God's calling more Christians into public service and are answering the call. Mm -hmm. I think every Christian really ought to pray about that. Lord, am I called to be in public service in some way? Called to ask that question. I believe we're called to steward our influence as effectively as we can. James Davison Hunter, the great sociologist, has a book called To Change the World, demonstrates culture changes top down. Hmm. It changes when you achieve your highest place of influence and live there faithfully, calls it manifesting faithful presence. He's convinced me that that is how culture changes. 100%. If everybody listening to us could achieve our highest place of influence and live there faithfully with excellence, Hmm. God, I promise you, will use your influence in ways you can see and ways you can't see. Amen. And you'll be part of the kingdom movement that we so desperately need today. Amen. Completely agree on all fronts. Jim, thank you so much. This is one of those conversations that I'm like, we could just open another door and talk for another 40 minutes, (laughs) but I want (laughs) to always try to keep these at a reasonable listening time. So thank you so much. My privilege to be on with you today, Blake. God's so grateful for you, for your family, for your ministry, and really just praying for God's best for you and all that you're doing these days. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right, see you next week.